Aloha! Welcome to Weaving Voices, Connecting Community Through Hawaii Life Stories, a podcast series in partnership with the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii Manoa, the Hawaii Council for the Humanities, and Hawaii Public Radio that features excerpts from the archive of over 800 interviews of Hawaii women and men at the UH Manoa Center for Oral History in the Department of Ethnic Studies, College of Social Sciences. Any story about Hawaii's political revolution of 1954 has to include the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. These were largely second-generation Japanese-Americans, Nisei. They came back from the war, and many took advantage of the GI Bill and went to law school. Then came a move into politics, in opposition to the Republicans who had held power for so long, and the interests of the Big Five, the sugar and pineapple interests that drove so much of the political influence in what was then still a territory. John Ushijima was one of those returning Nisei. He was born in 1924 in Hilo, got his law degree at George Washington Law School in D.C., and was elected to the state Senate in 1959, later serving as Senate president. When he did this interview in 1989, he spoke not only of his own experience, but that of many of his fellow veterans. What was the general feeling among the veterans coming back about Hawaii and about the future of Hawaii and their role in Hawaii? Well, I think uh, whenever you go away, you see Hawaii in a little different perspective. And invariably, you know, you uh, get to sit down and discuss things and you talk about what you're going to do, what's going to happen when you get back there. And uh, I think most of us felt that uh, we want to come back and uh, do something worthwhile, something to change the economic, social um, areas that we felt should be uh, changed. And I think that's the reason why so many of them decided that perhaps law was a vehicle that they should get into. At that time, uh, Hawaii was predominantly Republican, and you had the plantation mentality you had the big five mentality. With the limited amount of education that we had at that time, just out of high school, I think we knew that something was not right, that um, people have been restricted insofar as fulfilling their aspirations. And um, the funny thing is that when you get away, you look at things in a little different light. You know, the perspective is a little different. Hawaii is just a small little place in the Pacific. You think of things that you can do to perhaps better the uh, general welfare of the people. And I think there was this burning desire to change things. You can do it uh, in an evolutionary way, not through revolution, you know. And, uh, and there were those elements when I came back, you know, the unions became very aggressive and they wanted to change overnight and things of that sort. I think we were more along thinking that things could be done through the political arena. I think that's the reason why so many of us came back and said in 1954, it was the first time that uh, when they were ready to run for office. And this is where I think the 
whole impetus began. People got interested in politics. People got involved. Uh, things were just ripe. Because up to that point, of course, you know, Hawaii was a pretty closed society. Uh, everything was tokenism. The supervisory people were more republicly inclined. The rank and file were more democratically inclined. So you could see that cleavage very easily. See, what we really wanted to do was uh, open up that society a little more so that we have a little better mobility based upon, based upon uh, ability. And to a certain extent, I think we did it. John Ushijima. Another participant in that opening up that increased mobility was William S. Richardson. He served as Chief Justice for 16 years, long enough that his nickname was CJ. But long before that came service in the Army during the war, but not as part of the 442nd. You'll hear more about that shortly. Richardson was born in Honolulu in 1919 of mixed ethnicity, including Native Hawaiian, Chinese, and European. He graduated from the Cincinnati College of Law, and after some time in private practice as an attorney, in 1962 he was elected lieutenant governor in the John Burns administration, before becoming chief justice in 1966. This interview was recorded with Dan Tuttle in 1990, when Richardson reflected on the shifting nature of political affiliation in Hawaii. My father had been a Democrat, but you know, you, you didn't dare tell anybody you were a Democrat. <laughs> My wife's family, Rock Rib Republicans at first, she had to go around explaining and apologizing for the actions of her husband as a Democrat. And it really didn't mean that much because the Democrats had nothing anyway. There was no Democratic Party to speak of. And you were uh, young, right out of law school. You were also Hawaiian, whereas a lot of these other young, young men were, were more or less Japanese. Yeah. Um, did, did, did Burns come out directly to you and say, well, you know, we want you to talk to yeah. Hawaiian people? Yeah, he wanted me to recruit Hawaiians into the party. I think that was his main assignment to me, get the Hawaiians interested in the party and make them Democrats. How successful I was, I don't know. Well, historically, Hawaiians and part of Hawaiians had been, tended to be Republicans, right? Yes. Well, the Democratic Party had a lot of trouble with so-called communists of today. Did that affect you, or were you, well, were you that tied up to the party yet? That's what split the party some. Uh, I was so new at that time I didn't know exactly what happened, but I do remember uh, Rice from from Kauai. I think the convention started in the morning, and uh, by noontime, I could see Charlie Rice, I think it was, or his brother, saying, I can't stand this any longer, I'm leaving. And then it was a question of who is going to follow him out, you know? and. Uh, a number of them followed him out, but it was a minority, and we carried on then, and I, I got my first schooling on, on what uh, politics was, was like, and they took on the, the hard problems of the day and pounded out a program that uh, was the program for the next 
25 or 30 years. Yeah, well, this came about in 52, I believe. Did you realize as you went from 52 to 54, or did you have any real notion that you're going to have a great victory such as you had in 54? Well, we knew it was coming sooner or later. We didn't know it was going to come that, you know, in, in uh, such a great majority would come all of a sudden. You know, we were fighting it out just to get more Democrats. All of a sudden, everybody that wanted to run seemed to to win. It was a coming together of, of the 442 boys that now had returned from, from law school and the hard work of or Burns, I would say, in, in picking them virtually when they got off the boat to join the Democratic Party and start working for it. After we won, there were only three Republicans and 12 Democrats. And almost all 12 didn't know exactly what was going on, but we knew what we wanted to do, and how we were going to do it, we weren't exactly sure. William Richardson's legacies live on today, of course, and not just at the law school at UH that's named for him. Among many legacies of the Richardson court is that state law of equality that grants public access to beaches across the state. The links between the law and political activism were strong in another returning Army veteran, Robert C. Oshiro. He was born in Wahiwa in 1924, and after military service, he got his law degree from Duke University in 1953. He was elected to the State House in 1959 and stayed there until 1970, but also served as a campaign strategist. In 1988, he talked with Dan Tuttle and our occasional guest, Chris Coneybear, and he spoke about the importance of bringing a different perspective to a political world very much in change. I was very interested in these so-called society from the standpoint when, when you're looking at labor, you're looking at labor management. But there's more to society than just labor management. What about the others? And those are the questions that uh, stimulated me. When you got back from law school, as I recall, you got into politics. Uh, well, first of all, you set up your own private practice out in Wahiawa, right? And and then uh, got involved in politics uh, just before the '54 election. Well, yeah, that I came back with one conviction that, as a lawyer, I had an obligation to to join a political party. Uh, and of course, in my case, it's what Democratic Party. I got involved really in '53. Mm -hmm. uh, as a precinct president, which is the lowest unit in the political system. What was campaign work like in that, for you, out in the country in that 54 campaign? Well, oh, at that time in 54, um, a great deal of it was, was putting together rallies, which was the primary vehicle for campaigning at that time. As you know, uh, those were the days when we didn't spend any money, really. For you, you had no real television, or very little radio, if any. Uh, as far as print is concerned, it was just simple brochures, homemade stuff. So your primary activity was rallies and uh, the so-called coffee hours to get the candidate to meet the people. 
The 54 campaign was an exciting one. I think in 54 that gave us hope, tremendous hope, that this is the avenue that we should work towards if we want to bring about changes, whether it's political, economic, or social. And that reinforced the thinking that many of us youngsters at that time had, um, resulting from our exposure to the so-called the World War II experience. The hardest election for me was 1962 or thereabouts when I voted a, against a bill that ILW wanted and I come from an ILW district and they came after me with hammer and tongs in my second, second election and I had to bypass the leadership and get down to the grassroots members <laughs> practically explain to them one-on-one, -on -one, you know, what this is all about. So you can get to their membership, but uh, it's difficult. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're, you are buying a person, the character, whatever character he has, or everything about a human being. If that guy is going to, has no value, the value is different from yours, well, that, that's the value you're buying if you, if you get him elected. We've been hearing from Democrats so far in our Voices from the Center for Oral History, but the first elected governor of the state of Hawaii was a Republican. William F. Quinn was born in Rochester, New York in 1919. He served in the Navy in the war and moved to Hawaii in 1947, where he practiced law for 10 years before being appointed governor in 1957 and winning election in 1959. He lost his bid for re-election to Jack Burns in 1962. He spoke in 1988 to Dan Tuttle and Chris Coneybear and talked about how he became a Republican. O.P. Suarez was chairman of the Republican Party, and this was right after Dewey had lost to Truman. So they were going to have a Lincoln Day gathering, and uh, O.P. says, will you be our chief speaker? Sure, okay. I went to the to the library, got a few books on Lincoln, <laughs> because at Lincoln Day Talk, I'm going to talk about Lincoln, <laughs> which I did. And uh, so suddenly I was a Republican. So he got recruited as a Republican just to make, to, to make the Lincoln, speech. Lincoln Day so speech with that, I became a Republican. <laughs> well, let's move along here as rapidly as we can. Uh, all of a sudden, from the joys of statehood, or all of the friction that may have been involved, you were suddenly placed in a position where you had to make up your mind whether you were or were not interested in becoming the first state governor of Hawaii. Yes. What was that agenda that you thought was... Well, at the top of the heap, I learned as soon as I got in there, if I hadn't known it as a citizen, was that Oahu was very prosperous. The neighbor islands were just dying on their feet for several reasons. One, uh, sugar was mechanizing, contracting its employment. Pineapple plantations were being closed, and there was like 12, 13, 14 percent unemployment and a reducing population on every neighbor island. And so I said, something's got to be done about this. And so starting, uh, first thing I did uh, as a territorial governor is uh, make a, my own decision, I guess, that for the near term, uh, tourism was the answer. And uh, we didn't have any tourist facilities. We had Kona Inn, that was about it. And so I, I put together a top-level group, and it had private people, it had contractors, it had financiers, 
It had planners and, and uh, architects, and it was a group of about 15. And I said, I want you to make a study of the neighbor islands, of all of the, st of the territory, and tell me where are the best tourist destination areas. It concluded, and, and gave me a good report in about six, eight months, that there were about 21 places that they labeled triple A in various islands, each one of which was larger than Waikiki. But they didn't have water or roads in some cases. And so I started my capital projects agenda to use the state efforts to develop the roads, and in some cases, harbors or airports or whatever is necessary to try to open up these areas and uh, look around the state today and every one of them that has developed is, is one of those areas that was designated. William Quinn, former governor, talking there about his role in developing tourism in the islands. Our last voice from the Center for Oral History today is another transplant to Hawaii and the first woman we've heard from today. Helene H. Hale was born in 1918 in Minneapolis, moving to Hawaii in 1947. She was a teacher in Kona and served on the Hawaii Island Board of Supervisors from 1955 to 1963. That was the predecessor of the county council. She then became chairman and chief executive officer of the county, the office that today is the mayor. She returned to the county council and in 2000 won election to the state house, where she served until at the, at the age of 88. She talked with Chris Coneybear and Dan Tuttle in 1988 and started with a perspective well outside Oahu. In the neighbor islands, the Democratic Party was organized by the labor union, right. which was at that time really um, uh, getting a, a foothold on the plantations, and that's where uh, the Democratic Party was strong. It wasn't strong in Kona, and it wasn't it was somewhat strong in Hilo, but mostly in the plantations, which dominated the economy of this island. In the 1950s, my husband decided to run the first constitutional convention. He was advocating the breaking up of the plantation system and selling the land in fee simple, which most of the big landowners couldn't do because their trusts had tied up their land so they couldn't sell it in the deeds and but we advocated selling the land in fee simple to the coffee farmers so they could build decent houses and and live decently and people could own their own homes of course that really shook up the establishment in kona and because i was teaching at kona Wina, they tried to put pressure on my job and you know tell me I had, he had to be quiet. I resigned my job. He didn't win in the general election, but it really shook him up. I was the first woman ever elected to a board of supervisors in the I, state. I thought not only were you the first, but you kept getting reelected too, didn't you? Yeah. Well, after you once got in, it's um, a little easier. People got used to a woman. Up to that time, you see, people had not considered a supervisory job a woman's job because most of the supervisors considered themselves super road overseers. They spent their time <laughs> patching the roads and 
and I consider myself a policymaker. But I was very active in the UPW getting organized. We got the road workers to be civil service. Up to that time, they were not civil. I was concerned with these kinds of issues. I worked with the union in the old days. And the irony of it is that although I was identified with the ILWU and the UPW, they have not been very happy to support me in the future elections because as they got more independent and got more powerful, they sort of wanted somebody they could tell what to do. The plantation system was changing and you were looking at a, a rural plantation economy moving into something else. Were you involved in trying to talk about issues of development and things like that? Or? Some of the issues we faced are haunting us today on the Board of Supervisors. Um, for instance, the rapid development of Pune into subdivisions in which a lot of our politicians were involved. They bought big tracts of land in Pune and sliced them up into paper subdivisions without roads and without water and without utilities and sold them on the mainland because by that time Hawaii was getting known we were just about ready to get statehood and when statehood came all of this big boom everybody wanted a piece of Hawaii so you know some people made lots of money subdividing our land and it was a controversy and I remember being concerned that we were allowing this to go on but it did seem to me that we would face problems down the way if people ever came and lived on those lots. Helene Hale talking in 1988. She was the first woman elected to a board of supervisors in Hawaii back in 1955, one year after Hawaii's political revolution of 1954. For the Center for Oral History and Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Bill Dorman.